I'm Julia Sherbakov, and this is Impact Journey. Conversations with hidden heroes making big societal change. I think we've done ourselves the greatest disservice. We've lost the sacred in the science, and what we've done is we've actually lost the group of people that can create mass behavior change with one message. It's one of their own, the person they trust the most, asking them to be a better Christian, a better Catholic, a better Muslim, a better Buddhist. It's a very different way of creating behavior change. All of a sudden, what they viewed as a sacrifice actually has become an honor. Today, I am honored to welcome Dekila Chungyalpa. About her impact, Dekila has spent her whole life at the intersection of faith and environment. She leads the LOCA Initiative, a climate education platform for faith leaders at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Before that, she founded Sacred Earth, a faith-based conservation program at the World Wildlife Fund. About her journey, I have been waiting to speak to someone like Dekila. This podcast is really an attempt to connect with people on some of our most important issues like climate change, and yet until now, I have been missing a huge group from the conversation and a huge way to connect with people, which is through faith. I'm not religious, but I do notice how these big issues need us to have hard conversations, and hard conversations need us to tap into more than facts and fears. So I love the way that this conversation with Tequila opens the door to bringing the sacred back into science. Please enjoy. Where I'd love to start is a bit of your story. Most of the people I've talked to and most of the people I work with have had sort of an aha moment that brought them to what they're doing now and looking Mm -hmm. at your past, it feels like both. On the one hand, you were sort of born for this. And it was always in your ways (laughs) of being. And at the same time, you have had some turning points. So I'm kind of curious how you would tell that journey that got you here. I was born in the Eastern Himalayas in the small place called Sikkim, which used to be a Buddhist kingdom. There are three peoples who live together, who were the original inhabitants. And so I belong to one of those groups who are called the Bhutia. And we're actually people that very gradually migrated from Tibet. And so very staunchly Tibetan Buddhist. What's unique to Sikkim is that our culture often skews matrilineal. And so I come from a family that is very strongly Tibetan Buddhist, had a lot of women who are Tibetan Buddhist practitioners and teachers, including my mother, who was a nun, who took her vows in her mid-30s and became a nun. But my family at the same time really prized education. And because I was good in studies, it was understood that I would go to the West and study. And my aunt brought me to New York City when I was 15. And I often joke that it was just (laughs) the greatest shock of of my life till that point, which is one day you're in the Himalayas and next day you're in New York City. But I took to it. I loved it. I found that I was an environmentalist simply because I didn't have nature around Mm. me. I had spent so much time in nature and in wilderness areas that the absence of it was a very big shock to my system. And I became an activist almost instantly. (laughs) You know, the moment I realized 
realized that there were these organizations that were advocating for nature. That's kind of where my heart was. I had very little doubt about the path I took professionally. You know, I created my own major. I knew I was really interested in decision-making in particular around mm. environmental challenges and issues. I did my undergraduate research in Apache reservations, looking at nuclear dumping, and was really blessed with support and guidance from Native elders, particularly women, and doing my master's. And, you know, I'm going to do a little bit of a divergence, but one of the things that I've really made a point to communicate is that if you are someone like me, who comes from what is a tribal community with a very strong set of values and a paradigm and a worldview where nature is alive, Western education is extremely narrowing. And it requires you to kill off something in yourself. For as long as I could, I tried to hold both these things to be true in my life. The spiritual aspect of my being and the scientific aspect of my being were of equal value. And that the spiritual process of truth-seeking and the scientific process of truth-seeking were equally valid. But what I found in Western education was that I was expected to completely give up that spiritual aspect. And if anything, my intellect was called into question. You know, it was often assumed that maybe my intellect is inferior because I'm female or because I'm a brown woman or an indigenous woman or a woman of color, any of those titles you can think of. Even at that time, I look back and what I see is that I knew I didn't want to immerse myself into a worldview where I became uprooted and where I became kind of lost. Yeah. And where you were not whole, right? Where I was not whole, giving that worldview up, it required a sacrifice I just couldn't make because that it honestly meant I would sacrifice joy. So I stayed in the environmental path. I knew the work I was really committed to doing was working from the ground up with communities to build projects to protect wilderness areas and wildlife. Um, I was really lucky. I was hired by the World Wildlife Fund and was sent almost instantly to the field. So I spent, you know, I often joke, like the first eight or nine years of my career was, was just heaven. I just could spend as much time as I wanted in wild, wild places almost every week being like, I'm being paid to do this. <laughs> it was just dream job. job. Yeah, I know. It was just a dream job. But in the work, two things started happening that I think happens to every environmentalist at some point or the other, which is you slowly start waking up to the fact that what you're doing is simply not happening fast enough or large enough or at a mainstream enough and that's when the panic sets in because mm -hmm. most environmentalists we are driven to protect this thing we love more than anything else what we're trying is to wake everybody up to say that we cannot live without functioning ecosystem you know if we cross all these planetary boundaries for example there is going to be consequences and repercussions and we're already experiencing that climate change is going to completely destroy what we know of right now as life on earth and so that kind of urgency often transforms into panic and that was what I was experiencing huh. now we have terms for it I mean we say eco-anxiety and climate distress and solastalgia and at that time there were no words to describe what I was going through I just knew I was having nightmares and panic attacks I'd um been promoted and I was the WWF US director for the Greater Mekong. And you would think, again, going back to this Western linear idea of success, I'm very successful at that point, right? Mm. 
I'm the youngest director WWF has in the field program. But actually what I was experiencing was an unmooring in a sense, because I realized that what we were doing was just not going to change what the impacts of climate change in particular were going to be for the Mekong region. And we were in some sense begging and pleading corporations and um, governments to put sustainability before economic growth. And of course, completely failing at changing anybody's mind at that level. And so two things happened. So I'd been asked by His Holiness the Karmapa to create environmental guidelines for the Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and nunneries in the Himalayas. And I'd said yes on private time. I really thought of it as, you know, oh, this, this makes me a better Buddhist. Yes, I'll well, give up. Interesting, but you thought education. of it as a you separate know, I, thing from I your job. Oh. And I think through that point, the way I'd survived and the way I had succeeded was to create a bifurcation in myself where I was a environmental professional by day and a person of faith by night. When I was first asked to create these environmental guidelines, I really thought of them as a one-off thing. Instead, what it did was it kicked off a movement. There was mm. such a strong reaction from the monks and nuns who received this very pretty set of guidelines that they were just saying, we want the training. We understand what you've written, but we want the science training. What ended up happening was they self-organized and created a movement, which is known as Koryu. They do everything from reforestation, you know, climate adaptation, disaster preparedness, wildlife protection, you name it. And I ended up inadvertently becoming the coordinator for a monastic movement. So this was one thing that was happening mm. on the side that was giving me a great deal of joy. And this idea that we should be working with faiths had came from this experience. The other thing that happened, of course, was the Convention of Parties on Climate Change in Copenhagen in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so I sometimes say no one can fault me for losing all trust in the process after Copenhagen, right? I think it was a major wake-up call for a lot of folks in the environmental and climate movement. I think it became really clear that there would not be a fair and equitable agreement amongst all nations. Um, we had this idea that the largest global emitters historically would live up to the consequences they were forcing everyone else to bear and would in some sense pay the global south to protect themselves from these consequences. And of course, that did not happen then and still has not happened now. And I think these two things happening at the same time is what made me realize that I really have to take a few steps back and see what other opportunities there are and what other ways of thinking there are. And of course, that's when I sank back into my roots. Um, yeah. And so I convinced the World Wildlife Fund to let me test for five years a program where we worked with faith leaders in different parts of the world and to see if bringing the sacred back into the science would change results. And it was successful beyond my dreams. So without meaning to, I basically left the career path I loved and thought I was going to be on till I died and ended up just working with faith leaders and indigenous leaders. Yeah, to create this something totally new. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the bifurcation, the sort of having to divide yourself. I'm doing this for my job. And on the side, I'm doing this other thing that I care about. So on this podcast, I've talked to CEOs, nonprofit leaders, investors, some UN types, academics, Actually, the faith community has been missing from that. What I've noticed is there have been some folks from the faith community that do bring in climate issues. So Pope Francis being one, mm -hmm. the Dalai Lama uh, being another one, you know, 
at the same time, somehow on the business leaders, the science leaders, the climate leaders are not often talking about faith in the same way. Sort of, Mm. there's not the bridge the other way. And there are some exceptions. Catherine Hayhoe, the climate scientist, even when she was at COP, she made that front and center. Christiana Figueres, right? Actually speaking of the COP at Copenhagen, she credits uh, the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh for getting her and that group to the Paris Climate Agreement, you know, six years later. And so I'm so curious for you observing that system, where the role of faith sits in that ecosystem and what sort of the rest of us, especially in business are missing if we are not including it. So I think there are two ways to look at it. There is definitely the aspect to it where I think faith question the purpose of life beyond the material accumulation of things, right? So they question what the purpose of life is and why there is human existence. And I think very little in the business world and in the market world and the the Euro-derived education system Mm -hmm. allows us to even go there. But if you approach it from a faith perspective, this is basically the beginning of you entering any kind of spiritual truth-seeking, right? What is the purpose of human existence? Mm. When you look at systems that have gone awry, unchecked neoliberalism, fossil fuel dependence, policing systems, just the entire prison complex, what do all of these things have in common? What they have in common is this adherence to power as the greatest value, the willingness to justify the path to gaining the most power. Everything is designed around that. And I think faith systems really question that, rightfully so. Even the way we think of land as property, what does that bring into question? That we are alive for 90 years, the trees we plant live beyond us, but we still believe we own the earth, without Mm. which we could not take even a breath. So I think there is this very deep philosophical dialogue that faiths spend their time (laughs) delving into and focusing on that needs to actually really influence where we are as a species. And then I think there is a very practical side of matters where faiths actually collectively are the third largest category of financial investors. People forget this all the time. They run 50% of schools worldwide. 80% of the human population follow and subscribe to a religion. They are incredibly influential as stakeholders. And so when we talk about very practical measures, whether it's carbon footprint that we're talking about, fossil fuel divestment, this idea of divesting from fossil fuels so that you can invest in renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Do you know who, which sector leads the highest number of fossil fuel divestment? One third of it is by faith institutions. One third, it's in the trillions of dollars. And so this idea that we have, I think we've done ourselves the greatest disservice. We've lost the sacred in the science. And Mm -hmm. what we've done is we've actually lost the group of people that can create mass behavior change with one message. I've seen this in action personally with faith leaders getting up and saying, give up me, or we're not going to buy any more cars Mm. for our monastery or for our church. And so there are all these different calls to action that faith leaders make that their public and their followers, you can see that instant ownership of that idea as their own. It's one of their own, the person they trust the most, asking them to be a better Christian, a better Catholic, a better Muslim, a better Buddhist. It's a very different way of creating behavior change. All of a sudden, what they viewed as a sacrifice actually has become an honor. 
And this might add another layer to what you just said. What you just made me think of is probably one of the most powerful things that really shifted my perspective on the climate crisis was something that Kate Marvel, the climate scientist said, and I'm totally paraphrase here. She said, I'm less worried about what climate change will do to the planet. And I'm even less worried about what climate change will do to people. I'm more worried about what people will do to each other. And for me, that feels like prime territory for faith leaders to lead that discussion too. So I'm really curious how you see that emerging of like, yes, we're protecting the planet, but really what we're trying to do is as humanity, are we going to survive? Yeah, that's a wonderful point. So you mentioned Pope Francis earlier, right? And he, in 2015, came wrote the Laudato Si, which is his environmental encyclical. And I would say it's revolutionary what he wrote, because he connected climate change to poverty, to oppressive systems, to economics, and to this sort of extractive way of our global economic order. He pointed out that the, these were all interlinked and interdependent. Of course, being a Buddhist, this is something that really resonated with me because for me, I view everything through the lens of interdependence. When you study nature and all the living systems, what you see is that the principle that actually of life is based on interdependence as well. One of the things that's really apparent to me is that the way we talk about environmental issues is very utilitarian. Protect the planet so that your grandchildren will have clean water and clean air, right? Putting aside the fact that it's no longer grandchildren, it's us. We need to get away from that kind of messaging. We have a tendency to overvalue ourselves and whoever we think is part of the self. So my community, they probably look like me, they act like me, they live around me, right? As long as things don't impact myself, that's that identity and community, it doesn't matter what happens to anyone else. So I think there has to be other ways we approach what needs to change and how we need to view environmental protection in general. The earth is a closed system. The air, the water, and it's the land. But nothing really leaves or enters it. So everything that happens in this planet, this idea we have of ourselves as entities, our communities, you know, our, all of that is happening in this closed space. We do not get to escape the impacts of one part of it on the other. And so it is harder for us to communicate that. It's like It's much harder for us to come up with 30-second ads around this idea of interdependence, or even from the indigenous worldview, this idea of kinship, where everything is in kin with one another. I think that requires that we take a hard look at what we're doing, because we're going along with the presuppositions that neoliberalism gives us, that resources are scarce. We need to compete for resources. And so... I think we really need to have these really difficult conversations, and it has to be between the leaders of economic institutions, the environmental field, and I would say faith leaders. And I think it really matters that we have this deeper conversations and we give ourselves the space and time to have these deeper conversations, because I do think Kate's worry is actually the one of that we should all be concerned about. Generally, I try to end on a bit of both hope and also practical uh, Mm -hmm. solutions. And what I'm hearing from you is 
one of the ways that bringing faith and faith leaders into conversation almost gives us permission to have the hard conversation that otherwise we're avoiding. And I'm curious in your work, I'm looking at your face and you're lighting up, like what gives you that light (laughs) and what gives you that energy (laughs) that I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis? One of the things that I love about the work I do is watching the power of ideas. And when you work with faith leaders, even the concept of universal human rights, that's a really recent idea. And the fact that it's become universal, it's something that any human anywhere in the world knows that he is supposed to have human rights. We're talking about barely a century of change in the human psyche. And it's there. We believe this. So I think change is something that can be easy. A part of it is the timing right. Part of it is based on ethics. Part of it is who's the messenger. So often it's people in the private sector who support my work. It's people in the private sector who want me to bring in faith leaders to have this dialogue. So I think there is this understanding that the systems we've created do not make up the entire sum of entity of who we are as human beings. And at the end of the day, we are human beings trying to do better and be better. One of the values of bringing faith leaders into the dialogue is we really get to question why we do what we do. If the ends do not justify the means, if it is the means that matter, or if maybe even the the means are the end, how brilliant that would be when we think about the future of the earth. Thank you for sharing this. It just warms my heart to hear you tell your wholeness story of how these parts of you sort of came together. And I'm also in a meditation apprenticeship. On the one hand, it sort of sits on the side, but I'm constantly looking for ways of like, how can I integrate this in? What you've sort of given me is the door to open. And I can be like, hey, listen to this conversation and then let's talk. I think what could be really valuable, it's something that definitely I've learned from working with faith and indigenous leaders is rethinking what the criteria of success is and expanding it to include well-being of, let's say, your employees, well-being of your um, consumers, creating a criteria where sustainability is actually built into the product from the very beginning. We can have these conversations. We need to have these conversations. What would show the strength of a leader is the ability to actually have these conversations. Right? Yeah, well, and you've just justified my job, so thank you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A big thanks to Tequila. You can follow her work in the links in the show notes. What other hard conversations should we be having? Let me know at impactjourneypodcast at gmail. This is Impact Journey. See you next time.